Hello, and welcome to another episode of All the Rage at the Moment. I'm Thomas, here with my co-host Nick, and we are taking a break from our historical series, looking at how we got here uh, to do a little bit more current event examination, talking about some things that are in the news with regards to Christian nationalism and the Christian far right. Uh, we're going to be talking about a new documentary that has emerged, as well as uh, some happenings in uh, the Christian nationalism world, as well as uh, we are recording uh, on Monday night before election day. So there's been some election happenings that we're going to discuss as well. Well, first of all, I might I might contest your uh, description of this as a, a break from our uh, historical miniseries, the most recent episode on the background of the moral majority. And is this not just the fallout of the moral majority? Talking about Jerry Falwell Jr. and the uh, apple not landing far from the tree in that regard. <laughs> that's true. That's true. The the Falwell fallout. Maybe that's the name of this uh, this episode here. <laughs> it's in, it's interesting the way that the documentary does tie into the moral majority and talks about that a little bit. But man, it sure doesn't mention any of the behind the scenes names that came up in our discussion of it. Other right. than Paul, Falwell Senior. Yeah. Right. Right. But. Um, Wyrick and uh, Rich Vigory. Correct. Which, you know, because they've done such a good job in many ways staying behind the scenes of the scandal, at mm -hmm. least. Um, it's ironic, isn't it, that uh, – I know we're not talking about this now, but out of so much of the scandal that's come out of the right – Lots of it has been from Christians and pastors. <laughs> uh, there's been some that's come from just the the politicians themselves, of course. But um, it, as far as I am aware, there's no sex scandal with with Weirich or Vigory or um, any of the main political players. Somewhere down the line, there are some, but yeah, for some for some reason, the real freaks all go into the church. <laughs> Not sure, not sure what to make of that. <laughs> but speaking of freaks, we have some uh, we have some table setting and current events to talk about before we before we get into the the meat of the episode. We do, we do. Where do you want to start? There seems to be a lot of dissension growing in the Christian nationalist and Christian Christian nationalist adjacent circles. And it falls into a couple of categories. One, we have the the, the Trump v. DeSantis face-off. I say v, so it makes it sound like a Supreme Court case. It's not. It's going to be a primary race between uh, uh, Trump and DeSantis. Looks like it's it's shaping up that way. And already the conservative Christian coalition is sorting itself into two camps, right? And you get this sense that Trump surrounded him, has surrounded himself, you know, all along with these sort of celebrity Christian pastors, right? Who had who are in the media world, like he's been in the media world, and they're all these sort of uh, kooky, crazy personalities, and often they're very um, charismatic, Pentecostal in nature. You know, Paula White, um, Robert Jeffress. Uh, I don't think he's Pentecostal, but he's they're these sort of. Uh, charismatic, exuberant uh, type personalities. And they're also often very prosperity gospel, right? Mm -hmm. And so right. that was good enough for the sort of, you know, the culture warriors who 
you know, most most of the people I'm thinking of are the ones who have been signatories of the statements that we've looked at, right? The and and of Falwell Jr. Right, Falwell Jr. was a uh, was one of the very first uh, public endorsers of Trump as a primary candidate back in what February of 2016 or January of 2016. He endorsed and brought a lot of evangelicals along, and then all of these, uh, you know. This, move, this sort of anti-social justice movement that had already been uh, coalescing around uh, MLK 50 and um, the anti-Black Lives Matter movement, the, you know, the folks that, who signed the um, uh, statement against social justice, statement on social justice and the gospel, um, the Nashville statement, right? All these figures they didn't love the celebrity pastors then because they had all these criticisms of their failures to meet theological orthodoxy and so on. But Trump was still attractive enough. And certainly as an alternative to Hillary Clinton, that they lined up behind Trump and, you know, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, right? Uh, A higher, higher proportion than uh, Mitt Romney, who was himself theologically deficient from evangelical standards. Um, but also higher than George W. Bush in either of his terms, right? Like white evangelicals lined up behind Trump and were a huge unified block behind him. But now things are different. But not initially, right? We we have to remember if we go back to, to 2015 while there were still primaries, a lot of the more theologically conservative non-charismatics were actually vocal opponents of Trump. You think of people like Al Mohler and others who were like, you know, uh, never, ever, ever, or whatever that famous tweet was. Right, um, right. Uh, you know, but then they, when it became clear that Trump was, you know, the the candidate received the nomination, then they lined up behind him. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're seeing something similar now, right? The same people who were sort of a, opposed to him in the. 2015 primaries when there were others and criticized him and then lined up behind him. We're, we're seeing something similar. So we, we see that they don't love Trump. They never right. have. They, they saw him as a means to an end. Uh, but now we right. have a new contender. So, right. Ron, uh, Go- Governor de Sanctimonious. <laughs> Which I've got to say don't... is not – oh, yeah, that, not Trump's finest work. Right. I think right. In, in terms of the, the demeaning nickname game, he's, he's kind of lost a, lost a step. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. definitely slipped a step. But um, so and that was just, what, two nights ago at a rally. He he dismissed DeSantis as governor de sanctimonious. And it's amazing the reaction that that provoked and probably a calculated reaction. Right. I think you're right that at this point in the I mean, it's not even a primary yet. But at this right. point in the shaping up of the race, there's still this sense that as theologic, you know, conservative influencers, that these uh, pastors and, and social media pastors can put their thumbs on the scale and kind of push it the way that they want it to go, even though ultimately, yes, they will 100% line up behind whoever the Republican candidate is. Um, but at this point, they feel that there's a... Um, you know, the cement is still wet enough that they can kind of shape it a little bit and they want to shape it in the direction or they want to put their thumbs on the scale in the direction of uh, DeSantis because they see, they see him as Trump without the baggage, or at least that's my take. I agree. Yep. Exactly. Right. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, I I forget. I think trying to think of the names that I saw that were critical of 
Trump's bashing of DeSantis. But it was some of the the who's who among the more theologically non-charismatics. Um, right. Which uh, James White was the first one I saw. Okay, that's that's what I saw as well, and then I, I've seen others since then. I, Tom Buck, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, tweeted against it. Maybe it was Tom Askell because he just came out and prayed for DeSantis, right? Right, right. Um, but it was several. Yeah. It was not just a few people. It was it was right. a, a number of people, and you know the 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 humorous response that it kept provoking is, you know, uh, someone like like James White would say, "Well, I guess." I guess this proves it. He does not have the best interests of the conservative movement at heart. As if that was ever in question. <laughs> so, this is what tips the scale for you. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, so that'll be fascinating to watch. So we, we've got Tom Askell, who was the uh, contender for the – President of the SBC, uh, leader of Founders Ministry, the conservative wing of the SBC, who's throwing his weight behind Ron DeSantis, praying for him at a recent uh, campaign event. Um, and so, w- what's interesting with this is seeing the rift in the Christian right and exposing that it's not as monolithic, maybe as it might have been viewed to be. Um, and also showing sort of the the power, I think, to the chagrin of the more conservative, orthodox, non-charismatics, uh, how powerful the charismatic movement is in the United States, and how many people are actually because right. um, recently it was it was Kenneth Copeland, right, who offered the prayer for Donald Trump, and so that drew the ire of lots of folks, including. Um, Oh, who did I see? There was Tom As- was it Tom Askell's daughter. Yeah, uh, Hannah Askell. Hannah Askell. Hannah Askell Ellis. Yeah, married name. But yeah, she she tweeted a, or she retweeted Tom Askell's post of him praying and said Trump chose Copeland, DeSantis chose Askell. One choice was better than the other. Winky face. Yeah. So you know we we know I guess. My my hope would be that this division would end up, you know, breaking the Republican Party, splitting the party. Um, what will ultimately happen is one or the other will emerge victorious and then everybody, you know, kind of like what happens in the primaries in general, right? Everybody in the same right. party tears each other apart on the campaign trail and then all of a sudden as soon as one emerges as a clear victory, oh, we've always loved you. You're fantastic. We're going to support you 100%. <laughs> um, but yeah, so watching from the outside, this this inner battle between two very different sects of uh, conservative Christianity, sort of the the more cerebral Presbyterian, uh, Reformed Baptist versus the culturally conservative uh, and theologically conservative to a degree, but not confessional uh, charismatics. Yeah, so somehow I don't expect that the, uh, you know, fight, fight, fight. I don't think that contingent is is going to get what they want, but that with DeSantis and and Trump tearing each other apart to the point that neither of them can limp across the finish line. No, so, you know, I mean, we're we're a long ways out at this point, but it it's not it's not obvious that that will happen. Well, I, I mean, and even if it could, you look at the way that 
uh, Kamala Harris just destroyed Biden in the debates with like the invectives against him on deeply personal levels. And then, you know, you've got the, the video of her calling him the morning after the election saying, we did it, Joe, you know, as if I hadn't spent <laughs> the last six months trying to eviscerate your character and record so that I could have the nomination. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's all part of the game. And if you've watched, you know, more than one election cycle, you realize that that's what happens all the time. And then, you know, everybody yeah. falls in step once the nominee emerges, but uh, it'll be interesting. Do, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but if it does come down to a Trump DeSantis primary, where do you where do you place your bets? Um, I th- I think that the analysis that says that DeSantis is kind of very well positioned to both to appeal to both um, the ne- sort of never Trump and you know Republican leaning independents but also to take in a percentage of disaffected Trump voters who would be disaffected over various cultural things, but largely the vaccine, right? Trump is still very proud of the vaccine development and to end claiming, claiming all credit for it. And there's a large percentage of the, of the Trump base of the, the MAGA movement who, you know, insist that the vaccine is a poison, right? And so, uh, there are disaffected Trump voters to pick up. And so there's an, a line of analysis that says that DeSantis is just really well positioned and will be very difficult to topple from either the left or the right. Um, and, you know, I see all of that, but then I watch his interpersonal communication skills and I, it's, it's hard to see. He just is not a compelling figure. Um, he doesn't connect with either crowds or individuals the way that Trump does. Right. Um, and also he's quite short. Yeah, I, I think that's that's generally true. Florida is is important, but it's not the United States. Uh, DeSantis doesn't have the name recognition. He also doesn't have the baggage that comes with, you know, the whole Mar-a-Lago thing. But for Trump's most ardent supporters, right, that's just a witch hunt anyway. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. Who would you rather see go against a Democrat in 2024? I think in terms from I think in terms of electability, I think I would rather see Trump run because I think he galvanizes the Democratic base and is more likely to lose. Especially he's more likely to lose against an inferior opponent, which I think either Biden or Kamala Harris is a a pretty bad opponent against most politicians, right? Right, right. It's it's hard to say who I would – who would be more of a disaster sitting in the White House because uh, we've seen – We've seen what Trump's presidential style is and it's it's incredibly chaotic and destructive – um, he, you know, he rubber stamps Federalist Society judges and other than that just is simply incapable of running anything. And so just the entire apparatus of government falls apart beneath him, just crumbles in a, a, a constant wave of controversy. Um, and so there's that sense that like if, if, a, if someone as uh, craven as Trump, but more effective at implementing his will gets in there that you then have an efficient, vicious opponent who doesn't send off the same alarm bells that a Trump does. And that might be DeSantis, right? 
Right. So chaotic evil is preferable to orchestrated evil. It could be. <laughs> yeah. It could be, but also, um, I mean, chaos can do the damage in the end too. That's right? true. That's true. And th- th- there is a sense of, sorry, there is a sense of, of fragility in our institutions at this particular moment that chaos may be uh, perfectly poised to uh, uh, sh- shake things apart. Yeah. So we, we see some division within the ranks of the Christian political right with regards to presidential nominee. Um, but we're also starting to see some sort of dissension in the ranks with regards to one of the topics we've been talking about, Christian nationalism, especially following the release of Stephen Wolf's book, which we mentioned in the last episode. Um, but one of the things that's become increasingly clear with the publication of this book is that the version of Christian nationalism that Stephen Wolf is advocating for is explicitly misogynistic, uh, explicitly ethnocentric, if not explicitly racist, um, and it explicitly uh, Christian supremacist in the sense of like we should punish blasphemy and uh, non-Christians should should take on the role of second-class citizens, um, and so. And there's certainly he's he's got his ardent supporters who are like, yeah, we should you know restore voting to only white propertyed, you know, white landowning <laughs> men. And so as a result of that, some of the folks who have made names for themselves on the Christian right over the past couple of years are now in this weird position of trying to distance themselves from Stephen Wolf's Christian nationalism. Um, people like. Uh, Neil Shenvey, which, um, you know, has made a name in his anti-critical race theory crusades and um, even people as I would say sinister uh, as Andrew T. Walker, who's been pretty problematically conservative all of a sudden like saying, whoa, 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 this, this Christian nationalism thing is just goes a little too far for different reasons. Um, but right. it, it, even some conservative, conservative mutual friends of ours are like, "Whoa, this is not like this is not cool." So we're we're seeing a fragile but unexpected sort of alliance between what I would say, you know, liberal and progressive Christians who obviously are against Christian nationalism, but also like reasonable-minded, semi-reasonable-minded conservative Christians who are like, "Yeah, no, no, that's." That's a bridge too far even for us. Yeah, and it turns on a couple of things, I think. It turns on and, uh, Andrew Walker is at uh, SBTS. Oh, okay. Um, and is, um, I believe, overseeing William Wolf's uh, MDiv. I believe he's his advisor. Oh, wow. Which is fascinating because they've been kind of publicly going at it a little bit on Twitter. Um, Again, William Wolf, distinct from Stephen Wolf, the two Wolfs active in the uh, Christian nationalist discussion, or most active on Twitter, right? Um, but th- you know they've been they've been kind of going at it. Um, but I think it turns on a couple of things: both the question of of liberalism versus illiberalism, 
Mm-hmm. And that's liberalism, not, you know, in the classical sense, not defined as, oh, if you're liberal, you're kind of kind of lefty, kind of progressive, you know, likely vote Democrat. Um, but, the, you know, the classical, you know, the classical definition of liberal in its political philosophical sense, which is to say um, a particular stance toward uh, the structuring of society such that individual rights are protected and recognized over against on on the kind of far right, a sort of uh, totalitarian, uh, like a Soviet style communism, which is which right. is an, uh, an anti-liberal form of government or or conversely, a, a totalitarian th- a theocratic state or, you know, any sort of corporatism that does not recognize the uh, individual as a bearer of rights that the that even the even the values of the collective cannot stand against, right? So we talk about democracy in the United States, but that's always a qualified sort of democracy um, and not qualified in the sense of, oh, it's not a democracy, it's a republic. Like it's purely representative because it's not purely representative either, right? Right. But it is, it is qualified in the sense that we have a bill of rights that enumerates the rights that an individual has that the state or any state or the federal government cannot uh, impinge upon. And so that that, lib- that form of liberalism was sort of nascent at the time that the United States was uh, founded, and so that's why you know all this language of it being a great experiment, uh, an experiment of individual freedom, uh, and and what have you, is because it, ge- it genuinely was right. And these these people were sort of like political philosophy bros who had sort of discovered a new, uh, you know, the, this novel idea of a way that you could structure uh, a government or a society and uh, built it into the constitution. And there was debate then um, it, you can see it in the federalist papers, right? Some, some of the founders were kind of opposed to the idea of, of a bill of rights. We don't enumerate right. specific rights that individuals have, but over overwhelmingly they were in favor of it. And so we have a bill of rights and a liberal order, right? And so some, some of your, even your very conservative politically you're conservative uh, Christians, but just conservative um, thinkers in general are still committed to liberalism as a project. Right. And so as Christian nationalism comes to increasingly clearly define itself as anti-liberal or illiberal, Mm -hmm. they, they have to break ranks with that. Right. And, And that's true on the, the philosophical or ideological side um, but also on the theological side, right? Historically, Baptists have always been opposed right. or, or in favor of the separation of church and state um, for theological reasons. But from the – right, for, for the church's sake. For the church's right? sake, exactly. They come from, right. And so it, it comes down to uh, these two issues, illiberalism on the one hand and ecclesial concerns on the other hand, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's where someone like Andrew Walker um, – I think he's somewhat committed to liberalism as a project, um, but I don't think that's his overriding concern. I think his overriding concern, and also Jonathan Lehman of Nine Marks uh, and, and some of these other figures, it's the it's the ecclesial concerns that they have. But say say more about that. I'm sorry. No, I mean that's exactly right. Even um, like you know Luke Stamps, uh, the uh, theology professor mm-hmm. from uh, I think he's at is he at Anderson, South Carolina. If I remember correctly, um, that sounds right, but I don't, uh, don't call me on that. Yeah, I I think that's 
where's Trump? But you know, he he's coming at it from the historically. He he's part of the Center for Baptist Renewal, um, and coming at it from the the Baptist standpoint is it, sort of what's baffling him is that there are Baptists who seem to be in favor of this Christian nationalism. Things like guys, we've always been opposed to this, right? Like who, the. the that that's not something that Baptists historically, he said, you, you can believe that if you want, but don't call it Baptist. That's just dishonest. Um, which makes somebody like William Wolf so interesting because William Wolf is Baptist going to Southern Baptist theological seminary. Um, and one of the ch chief proponents of, you know, Christian nationalism, even going so far as to, you know, tweet, uh, you know, bait, like some people have made an idol of democracy. <laughs> indicating that, you know, like we don't really need democracy. What's most important is that, is that we're establishing Christianity. So yeah, we, we, you've got the, the ideological opposition from those who are committed to the idea of classical liberalism as an ideal. And then the theological ecclesial, um, you know, we don't want, we're afraid of which Christianity is going to be imposed at the state level. Right, a lot of these people who came to the United States came because they wanted freedom of religion, not Christianity, but not they just wanted to be free from Anglicanism, <laughs> right? right. Um, you know, so there's there's that concern. Which denomination, which Christianity gets the final say in terms of what gets established at the national level, which is the Baptist concern, right. even if they agree in in large part with the you know, anti-woman, anti-gay rights, everything else on an ideological level, they're still uncomfortable with the idea of a denomination enforcing that at the national level because they've seen how that can be problematic in lots of these other uh, places where Christian nationalism has or, or where, it, where a, a state religion has been enforced. Right. That was exactly the concern that Andrew Walker was expressing in a thread the other day. Uh, that you that you jumped on kind of jokingly, but you know he he observes. Look, we we have examples of nations with state churches, and what does it do? It erodes faith, and it seems that they're mostly um, strong welfare states now. Like the uh, you know the UK has a national church, and they also have national health care. You want that, United States? <laughs> yeah, I think my joke was, man. On one hand, I, I feel strange because Andrew Walker is joining me in criticizing Christian nationalism. On the other hand, he might be making a great case for it, right? If it's going to bring us socialized medicine and, and strong social Almost safety nets. thou persuadest me. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but yes, that's the, that's the concern on their side is that coerced – well, on one, coerced faith is never genuine faith, right? And I think even you and I would agree with that looking all the way back to, you know – the first time that uh, religion and the state, you know, went to bed together under Constantine, all of a sudden you now have um, social benefits that come from being a Christian. Um, and so you have to question at least the sincerity of, of the conversion, right? Are people becoming Christian just because it brings social capital? And I think that's a valid concern with something like a state religion. Right. That's a point that, that Howard Wass makes uh, this, which I think this might be the first time we've brought up Howard Wass on the pod, even though recently you've been really accused, I think of being a Howard Wass bro. 
uh, by some of the the Christian nationalists and nationalist adjacent folks. That's true. Uh, so maybe now's not the time, but I'd like to talk to you sometime about the this the Anabaptist posture in general and the this, these accusations of Anabaptism that you've been uh, accused of. But you know, we can I think come back to that at another point. But the point Hauerwas makes is that you know when Constantine made Christianity the state religion, it had the paradoxical effect of taking uh, of, of making it uh, virtuous to be a pagan. And the virtue he has in mind is courage, right? Before, right. it required courage to be a Christian because you, right. you were likely to be persecuted for it. And so you could practice the uh, virtue, you know, in the Aristotelian sense, right? The virtue of courage, the virtue of bravery. You could practice that by being a Christian. But per- uh, Constantine flips that on its head and suddenly paganism becomes the virtuous the courageous uh, decision because suddenly you're going to be persecuted by the state or uh, dis- disallowed, uh, f- you know, favorable status by the state and then eventually persecuted uh, for uh, choosing to, you know, worship Jupiter or whatever. And, uh, and that's not actually doing a service to the religion that Jesus of Nazareth founded, right? That's the sort of Anabaptist uh, or at least Neo-Anabaptist posture on that. Right, right. So it's it's so, yeah, weird that's... for you and I, like, because we have some of these figures with whom over the past few years have sort of been our ideological spar- sparring partners, and then this this new thing sort of emerges, and all of a sudden we're like, oh wow, Neil Shenvey asking some reasonable questions, Andrew Walker, you know, pushing back against this, uh, and others, which. The, is it is it the enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing? It, you right. know, um, which to be clear, they still want what I consider to be bad outcomes for the United States, right? They still course. want to shape society in ways that are, you know, among other things, explicitly anti-LGBT, right? They would love to see Obergefell rolled back, for yes. example. Correct. Um, Absolutely. So you know, it's 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 not that they've. Um, even stepped an inch closer to our side, but there's this worse thing. Right. They just happen right? to think that and, like making inner inner ethnic marriage illegal would also be bad. Right? <laughs> like, like, listen, we've got right, some limits yeah. too, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also, this also does speak to a bit to the difference between the United States today and the United States in 2015, 2016. Absolutely. When the block that was behind Trump in 2016, they were at least unified in a vision. That vision didn't consist of much, but Christian nationalism wasn't um, self-described and on the radar to nearly the same degree that it is today. Like they, it was there was a reactionary conservative movement. Mm-hmm. That was very, you know, anti-BLM, anti-LGBT. Um, it had its theological particulars, as expressed in the Nashville statement. So they're, you know, opposed to the equality of women. In some cases, opposed to the idea of a woman in a position of authority, such as president or vice president. Like, you know, very explicitly, all of these things. But now, a, the rightmost edge of that block has really expressed its its own vision in a detailed enough way that they're even getting pushback from the center and leftmost uh, portion of that block. Does that sound right? 
No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Um, I guess the way that we interpret that is significant, though. My concern, you know, on one hand, it's I guess on one hand, it's nice that hey, maybe now we're finding some common ground with some people that we thought were, uh, you know, once ideological enemies and still are to some degree. But my other concern, which I think is probably more realistic, is that the Overton window has moved so far to the right because of this is that now we're not even having the conversations that we we want to be or ought to be having with regard to like LGBTQ equality. We're now talking about like, should women have the right to vote, right? So the, this new contingent has has shifted everything so far to the right in a way that we're actually losing ground just because of that. And the people who we're aligned with now are aligned with out of necessity because you have this, this radical contingent um, that's an even bigger threat uh, and I think I think I am concerned about that. Yeah, and I think that the uh, the thread of questions that Neil Shinvey tweeted, the specifics of that, uh, does kind of uh, point to the degree to which that Overton window has shifted. Right. So um, just briefly, he he tweeted on November second and said that Christian nationalism is often nebulously defined, but evangelicals who identify with the labels with the label need to say clearly. One, how they feel about interracial marriage, which what a what a place to start. But I mean, he's exactly right. Um, mm-hmm. The 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 Kenist or Kenist adjacent content of Stephen Wolf's uh, book and other writings, and then the number of people who have come out of the woodwork to to defend and build upon that is is really striking. Uh, two, whether a Christian national identity quote unquote, requires a white national identity. And uh, I saw uh, one one person who's an enemy of the pod who retweeted that or responded to that and said, well, no, because when Kenya becomes a Christian nation, it won't have a white national identity. Which doesn't say much about what you think about the United States context. Right? And, and Right. And even then... I'm sure that Stephen Wolf is savvy enough to not use white, right? He'll use a lot of other things that mean white, um, but, you know, he's going to bring it back to ethnicity and and national origin. Um, and sh- shared cultural shaping, right? That's kind right. of the language that he leans into. Right, uh, and again, I've seen some very conservative, both politically and theologically conservative folks, push back against that and say, "So you're saying that I have more of a common worldview with non-Christians who share the same cultural upbringing and and background than I do with Christians from a different culture." Like, aren't you elevating the these uh, what what for years the conservative movement have insisted are um, either non-existent or or relatively insignificant characteristics above the level of the gospel or of Christianity or or you know our theological shaping, um, but yeah, so that's you know does a Christian national identity require a white national identity? And you might append to that in majority white countries, 
right? Or right. historically white countries or, or whatever, right? Right. right. Um, but three, what freedom of religion would look like in a, quote, Christian nation. And it's just it's – so, it's so striking to hear from – from you know Neil Shinvey, who you know get, get him get so many examples of him having debates against quote unquote uh, SJWs or you know he's so anti-critical race theory, um, anti-Black Lives Matter, um, but he he is concerned based on what he's heard from Christian nationalists about what freedom of religion would look like in a quote Christian nation. Uh, for whether, how, and which Christian traditions would be privileged by the state. And five, whether and how Christian nationalism would be achieved through democratic means. And a, a snarky response I've heard to that one is, well, through prayer and the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit, obviously. Sure, sure. Which again, not, you know, total non-answer, but... Um, right. And then says these questions are important both practically and theologically. And um, I guess we, we can post this since we're discussing it. We can post this uh, the first tweet of this thread in the in the show notes, and you can see the you know dozens of quote tweets, and then the responses on this thread and on the quote tweets of the thread. Um, but a lot of Christian nationalists um, are the the hit dogs hollering, right? A lot of responding with uh, sort of sort of acrimony at the idea that these questions would be asked or are just, you know, straight up owning the, you know, what we would consider to be the morally objectionable answer and saying, no, you just got to be able to say this stuff out loud. Right. 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 And, and Stephen Wolf has become increasingly like he's the pushback he's getting is just galvanizing him even further where he's saying like, you know, people are saying that this stuff is terrifying. Well, they should be scared. They don't know what's coming and they can't stop it. Um, right. Right. And so it becomes one of those things like, is this just a, a wacko fringe movement uh, that's going to be dismissed in, in a few months, in a year after it blows over? Or is this book, the new Mein Kampf? <laughs> right. Um, because it's it's one of those things that right now we can sort of laugh it off as this guy's clearly racist and sexist uh, and a little nuts and he's got some concerning followers. But if you think about what happens, like if Stephen Wolf is ever elected president or made the, the Christian prince as he writes about uh, in his book, it is it is a bad day for anybody who is uh, not white male Christian. Right. And, you know, I, I have a lot of hope and, and maybe even optimism. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Possibly it is. But I, I have a lot of, of, of belief in the, the resilience of the socially minded, you know, the concer- you know, concerned citizens of America. What a... What a trite phrase, but I do. I I I am. I I don't think you know a literal depiction of the Handmaid's Tale is in our you know is it's 
in, certainly not in my five-year plan, right? right, um, right. And so I think, I think that the, the most uh, histrionic concerns of the people who see this kind of stuff in terms of um, this being uh, just used as a blueprint and straightforwardly implemented, I think that's uh, incredibly unlikely. Although, you know, emergencies are, you know, what caused the state of exception that allow for, for unpredictable change, right? Nobody saw 9-11 coming, right, right? except for George right. Bush. But with, you know, with few exceptions, <laughs> nobody saw 9-11 coming. Um, and so, you know, you wonder if there were a, a, um, a catastrophe, what ideas happen to be lying around. That, that is a concerning thing. Um, but it, I, it certainly does not strike me as inevitable that, oh, this nascent Christian nationalist movement will um, continue to win over hearts and minds and eventually get voted into office um, right. as an alternative to the Republican and Democratic parties or, you know, whatever. Like that, that kind of gauche version of it um, is not the concern or is not my primary concern. It's kind of an outside concern. But my primary concern are two things. One, um, extremists motivated by this. Right. There, there have been so many extremist uh, individual acts of uh, of terror or, you know, look at the Oklahoma City bombing, which we'll be talking about in maybe our next episode. Um, but that grows out of the Christian identity movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can inspire, you know, you're you can think that you're theologically orthodox and that you yourself have respect for the rule of law. And so you promote these ideas, um, but you encourage people. Right, like, right. like this is not not a self-contained thing, and it's a nation of you know hundreds of millions of people. Um, so th- those kind of things happen, but also just the influence that an individual can have in an otherwise, let's say, chaotic presidential administration. You get you get a Stephen Miller, right, right. who's behind right. the scenes, just just cackling like a madman, free to design, a, you know, some of the most. Uh, repugnant, immoral, and harmful in terms of human cost uh, with just a, just a free reign, right? And so the idea that a Stephen Wolf or a Stephen Wolf acolyte could get enough power to seriously harm both entire populations of people uh, and also the, you know, the fabric of the systems that uphold society. Like that's not, that's not a um, like wild eyed conspiracy fear. That's just right. what happens, you know, every, every day in the country. Like th- that's, that's history. That's what history is made of. Right. Right. Yes. And I think based on what we've already talked about on this episode where we've gone, you know, our episodes from statements to statutes it's not unconceivable, inconceivable that that would happen with, with some of this kind of stuff, that what happens on the fringe, um, you know, Stephen Wolf is only a couple of degrees removed, right? He's, he's close with William Wolf, who was a, in a, a deputy secretary for, for President Trump, right? Um, it's not inconceivable that you slowly start to erode these things away, Um to the point that at, at, at some point there's there's no coming back, even even with some of this election stuff that you know, I, I hesitate on the fear mongering when people say that democracy is on the ballot, but to some degree, 
right? When you have many, many verified election deniers running for office and making claims like, I won't certify election results that aren't for a Republican. You know, at what point do you, where is the point of no return from that um, to where elections from that point forward are merely formalities like we have in other autocratic states like Russia, right? Where the, you know, sure we have elections, but we're, we've so rigged them to the point um, that only one party can win. Um, which coincidentally is what people like William Wolf are criticizing, are, are accusing the Democrats of doing. Um, but e- even you know, even gerrymandering to some degree with the, with the with the writing of the districts, at some point you you, you cross the line where it it becomes almost impossible procedurally to come back from, and we seem to be. Hurling towards that line, um, and again, I, I don't want to sound like the same kind of fear mongering that we hear from the right. But I think one of the differences between fear mongering and like calling wolf is: is there actually a wolf? <laughs> um, and it, I, I think we have. I think we have a wolf. Two of them. <laughs> uh, so, do we have have more to say about the uh, the current state of Christian nationalism and just? The, the, the right or are we ready to get into the yeah I mean I, I think as we're talking about you know kingmakers <laughs> uh, right. and you know how how the evangelical right does have influence at at levels like that um, yeah there there's been a, a documentary released sometime in the past couple of weeks I don't know the exact date um, November 1st November 1st okay so uh, November 1st uh, Hulu released God forbid. Um, a documentary into the sex scandal of Jerry Falwell Jr., former president of Liberty University, son of Jerry Falwell Sr., obviously the the creator of the moral majority. Uh, so you you've watched it, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't wouldn't that be a bomb to drop right now? <laughs> I haven't seen it. What's it about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you want to do you want to describe what it's about? Sure. Well, well, in, in a lot of ways, it's it is focused very specifically on the uh, sex scandal that emerged and, and and broke kind of pretty pretty publicly because some uh, some investigative journalists started to uncover these details and, and there were just for a while, just drips and drabs and then more and more questions about what is the relationship of Jerry Falwell Jr. to this pool boy. And then, you know, and a lot of the early, uh, early allegations or at least implications were, is Jerry Falwell like secretly gay and having an affair with this, uh, Cuban pool boy, as the memes and the media were were kind of describing him, um, and this was all you know during the midst of the Trump presidency. So it's easy to get lost in the you know the twenty four seven news cycle because just a, a scandal every you know four hours during those those four years. It was an exhausting time to be someone who tries to pay attention to what's going on. Right. Um, but so that's kind of at the center of this. But the figure at the center of it is Giancarlo Granda, 
the uh, Cuban pool boy, if that's what you want to call him. Poor, poor guy. He talks about how, how much it sucked getting uh, or being reduced to that and says, yeah. you know, how, how would you like to be forever known by the job you worked in high school? Because this all started when he was what twenty years old, twenty years and old, the, and the and uh, the documentary is primarily a long form interview with him, and then other people who were pulled into the orbit of this of this thing, uh, including uh, some of his family members, but also investigative journalists who you know, who started to crack this and got established contact with him, and also some of the uh, business partners, the shady business partners that uh, he and the Falwells got involved with. But it all started when you know they were the kind of stereotypical you know couple in their forties on vacation who you know see see you from across the bar and and send you a drink and say hey we kind of like your vibe you want to come up to our room and you know the story that he lays out is that they were into the cuckolding lifestyle which is to say Jerry Falwell likes to watch other people have sex with his wife uh, this is this is a family show by the way. <laughs> <laughs> And that she established a, a apparently a pretty emotional uh, dependency on him or an emotional relationship with him. Of course, we don't know how how genuine uh, that was. He pro- he probably doesn't know because he was he was strung along for years. You know, they establish uh, financial control over him. They they bring him into all of their circles, and so eventually that includes uh, that includes Trump. That includes the. Uh, leadership of, of Liberty University. But for years, he's having sex with Falwell's wife. And it starts as this sort of formal, like they arrange a specific date and Falwell sort of lurks in the shadows and, and watches and unbeknownst to Granda is recording, uh, right. which also gets used as leverage over him. Um, but over time, it just morphs into this sort of bizarre entanglement in their lives that he wants to get out of, but can't. Right. And so that's the sort of big narrative that holds all of this together. But the documentary itself also reaches back to the establishment of Liberty University, to uh, Falwell's establishment of you know, segregation academies, how the, the moral majority or how, you know, the Christian right in, in general sort of moved from, uh, segregation as its um, motivating factor realizes that that is a losing political uh, issue to major in and sort of transitions to abortion with the 78 election. So some things that we've talked about and some of the authors that we've that we've quoted and talked about are interviewed with this. Randall Balmer is interviewed talking about the transition from segregation to abortion as a um, organizing uh, issue or catalyst on the right. And Thea Butler is interviewed quite a bit for it. Um, so it reaches back into that history, the rise of the moral majority a bit. Um, and then of course, uh, Falwell Jr.'s uh, role in the uh, nomination and then election of Donald Trump. Um, and then, you know, kind of finishes talking about uh, the, you know, it, that there are structural elements at Liberty University that made it not just so that Falwell could sort of skirt the, uh, these issues. Um, and so it's not just the personal hypocrisy of Jerry Falwell that's at issue here, but there are structural elements at 
uh, Liberty University, where they have been able to really uh, minimize or dismiss or cover up uh, sexual abuse, sexual assault cases on campus, um, right. using their honor code as a weapon against people who would report. Um, and that, you know, Giancarlo Grande is far from uh, the only one who the Falwells had in their orbit, that they personally were um, sexually exploiting. So that's kind of a big picture. But man, there is not there is not five minutes that goes by without a sort of, oh, my gosh, right? like just these wild revelations. And uh, so much of it took place over uh, cell phones and FaceTime and things like that, that he's built up quite a body of evidence so that, you yes. know, uh, top line journalists have vetted a, a large percentage of this. And there are, you know, incriminating texts, incriminating photos, incriminating videos. Um, so it's uh, it's a wild ride. <laughs> It is, it, you know, it, what what grabs your attention is sort of the salacious nature of the sex in the beginning, um, obviously. But uh, I think what what really got my attention in that was the way that Giancarlo, which first of all, I I'm really glad to see him. You know, I think on one hand, you could look and say, oh, well, he's just trying to capitalize on this. But on the other hand, like he really was victimized for the whole thing, and to see him. Owning his story, you know, one of the things I often tell people in you know pastoral counseling is that if you can own your story, your story no longer owns you, right? And so this is him take, having a chance to take back some of the narrative. Um, but for you know the way that he genuinely expresses disgust at the hypocrisy of that whole inner circle, right? He's he's. He starts this thing out and, you know, he's like, I was just a horny 20 year old. You know, I think any horny 20 year old would have done the same thing. But he's like, then I discovered who these people are. Right. And I, he, he starts out talking about like, I looked into Jerry's dad and I told him, I said, like, I think your dad was, you know, kind of a, I forget the exact word that he uses, um, but like terrible person. And Jerry was like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not anything like him. Um, and to one degree, you know, Part of this, you see Jerry Falwell Jr., and I know somebody who knows him personally. He never fit in that mold. He's, he's almost thrust into a life that he didn't want to be a part of, right? That this, this conservative pastor's kid, he's very good with the, the business and the law and the real estate. Um, but people who know him will say, he was never really religious, right? He, he he never really bought into that. He had to put on the front. But so on one hand, you see this couple who is in this position based on, you know, birth, who really don't want to be there. like just, having a state church. <laughs> it's exactly right. And so it's almost, almost the pastor's kid on steroids, right? The, the, the quintessential pastor's kid who like acts out which is sort of what's going on here. You have this couple who's just trying to, you know, explore some sexual kink. Um, but, but Giancarlo becomes disgusted by the hypocrisy. He's like, I'm here. I go to Liberty University. I see all of the rules that these students are supposed to follow. I see the, the adoration that the students have for this couple that's supposed to be the head of this, this Christian university. He's like, 
and and it's just hypocrisy all the way through. They're doing all these things, and then he gets invited into even deeper inner circles. Right? I remember um, he's at an event in Washington, and according to his description, Paula White flirts with him, and his his impression is all of these people are completely different in private than these public personas that they put out where they're, you know, on fire for God and all these things that they, they, they're all living this double life uh, on the side. Um, And the way that he tells it, I, I don't know if it's just because he comes from the outside. It feels like a genuine, almost like a genuine betrayal to him. Like this isn't right. <laughs> uh, it, it just feels more, more genuine. Yeah, the outsider perspective that he brings to evangelicalism is really uh, – it's not something that's emphasized by the documentary at all, but it comes out, right? Like his experience of going to Liberty University and realizing that these are college students who have mandatory chapel multiple times a week at this thing. And he, he was not familiar with the term convocation. Right. Which, you know, probably a lot of, you know, even people who went to conservative Bible colleges that had chapel uh, requirements, you know, convocation is not uh, in every vocabulary, right? It's kind of a distinctive. I, I think there's probably some geographical boundaries on it. And also it's um, just limited to a certain type of chapel, I guess. Um, maybe it's used more widely than I think, but I mean, um, I, I'm certainly familiar with it from, from, Christian academia. Uh, but, you know, he learns the term for the first time and he, you know, just, you can tell from the way he's describing it, that even that kind of idea is a little foreign to him, you know, yeah. college students. Yeah. But then you see what that chapel service looks like. Cause you know, we all know that kind of famously Donald Trump spoke there and maybe, right. you know, that Mike Pence spoke there. Um, but it's, they, they just show clip after clip after clip of, you know, Donald Trump Jr. speaks there. Mike Pence speaks there. Uh, the, a rotating cast of uh, Fox News anchors uh, or Fox News uh, entertainment hosts. You know, Judge Janine speaks there. Um, Candace Owens on multiple occasions is there. And then, and what they're saying, it's not like, you know, in the guise of a sermon that veered into politics. Like, they're just doing punditry. Right. Like it is right. the most explicitly um, just this is just partisan politics, but being, you know, I mean, it's just it's just three hours of mandatory Fox News a week for the students right. who are there. Right. Yeah. You've got Corey um, Lewandowski yeah, who, who says, you know, it's so great to be at a place where you can actually say Merry Christmas again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just right off of Fox News. It's incredible. Um. But yeah, so his but the, his no, the, the 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 two the two facedness, right? This mm-hmm. his his surprise at right. these are you know ostensibly professionally religious uh, people, and he's kind of he's kind of shocked at how different they are when they're not on stage. And I've I've seen this so many times, even in uh, you know I think much less harmful ways, right? Not somebody who's openly hypocritical in terms of you know g- going after. Uh, young college students um, at at campaign events, but just the difference in in you know pa- pastors who uh, regularly cuss and drink, but they can't let the congregation find out. Right, right, and so 
and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with cussing and drinking, right? Like, obviously, there's a, like a decorum concern, like, you know, you, you speak differently in the workplace than you do to your buddies and, and so on. So, you know, there should there appropriately is some difference in how we conduct our professional lives versus sure. our personal lives and so on. But just the, the sort of open hypocrisy and the open hypocrisy that you get at seminary of, you know, you talk about um, – you talk about how Moses didn't write the Pentateuch and then say, ah, oh, but we can't tell the people in the, in the pews that like, there's this whole culture of, um, we, we all kind of know that we're putting on an act, but we can't, you know, come out and say it. Uh, and that, and the, I think that the, the fact of that can provide ground cover mm-hmm. for abuse of that. Right. By, for instance, the the Falwells uh, in this in this very powerful position that they have, uh, you know, ruling over this, uh, you know, the largest Christian university in the world. Right. So one of the key points in the documentary is that there's these. In order to establish financial control over Giancarlo, uh, the Falwells buy him this this hostel in Florida that he gets to run and have, um, you know, uh, an equity stake in. And there's some, some shady friends of his who become business dealings who then try to blackmail Giancarlo and the Falwells. And so that's when um, this is around the same time um, Jerry Falwell brings in Michael Cohen, who is, you know, Trump's sort of fixer. Right. And so, uh, Cohen fixes this lawsuit for them. Nobody doesn't really say how. And then they insinuate that Cohen then uses this as leverage to coerce Falwell's endorsement of Trump. And and here's one thing that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to me because it doesn't seem to me like Falwell needed to be coerced to endorse Trump. Mm-hmm. That's where I, you know, I've got some questions there because, you know, one of the things even before all that was, I think, back in 20. 2012. He's like, it's not too late for you to jump back in the presidential race, right? Like right. Fowell's been been friends of Trump for a while. So I don't know. What's what's your take on that? It that seems well one of the one of the things that I, I think it's Giancarlo who says it. It might have been the the reporter. But they, they do say almost as a throwaway line, I don't think he needed it, but mm. he likes to have insurance. Yeah. Okay. And that strikes me as correct, right? Like I think that's that Michael true. Cohen, which I think Michael Cohen has got to be in, in maybe the top ten most. Um, if you could know what he knows, top ten most interesting people in the country, right? Like he he is so involved in so much, you know, shady, so many shady dealings, and and yeah, just the the most flagrantly and obviously illegal aspects of that very, you know, very mafia esque. Um, but the problem is you literally can't believe a word he says. <laughs> right. So there's no, right. there's no way to get access to that information. Even if uh, he's, even if he's under oath, even if you're his cellmate, even if he's your best friend and he, he gets drunk and he's telling you all this at a bar under no circumstances, can you ever believe a word he says? Cause he, <laughs> he's, he's playing you too. Right. 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 Oh, what a, what a fascinating uh, figure to just kind of show up and be eh, a tiny part of your life. 
Right. <laughs> he says in the beginning, he says, if I would have known that this affair would have involved me in in everything up to the election of the president of the United States, I would have just kept my private life to myself. <laughs> uh, you know, to find yourself this this 20-something all of a sudden in the room with some of the biggest power players in America, how terrifying that must have been. Um but he has this description of the first time that he meets Michael Cohen. And he said, nice. that, you know, because Falwell would bring him along on these things. And, you know, Falwell has kids about his age and, you know, is involved with a lot of college students. And so he was pretty good at just sort of slipping him into social situations. I mean, like this is one of our, you know, young up and comers or blah, 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 something like that. But he said that Michael Cohen just immediately fixed on on him and said, what's this guy's deal? Like he asked like a like a a cutting follow up question that indicated to to Jean He's like, oh, this guy senses something. And it's like, yeah, I bet he did, because that's that's his job. <laughs> right, that's exactly right. Um, but it, it, it's all about the you know the 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 sex is salacious, right? But it's all about these inner workings, what it what it means to be a, a kingmaker um, and how, you know, Fowell was so instrumental in, in getting Trump to office. Um, but I was struck by one of Giancarlo's lines uh, in there. He, he says, um, uh, talking about Jerry Fowell, he's like, he's trying to appear like this strong man but I know him as the cuck in the corner of the room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, and I guess on, on one hand, it's like, okay, so what? But on the other hand, if you look at everything that we've looked at up until this point in our historical series, this isn't that far off, right? The, the moral degradation of... The guardians of morality, Paul Pressler and Paige Patterson, Falwell Sr., uh, Falwell Jr. now, even, even Billy Graham's, you know, virulent anti-Semitism, um, just the utter hypocrisy of the people who are trying to establish morality and it becomes very clear. And this is one of the things they talk about in the documentary. It's all about power. Even at, even at Liberty, it's all about posturing and power and letting people know that you're powerful. Um, that's what it all comes down to. And, and, you know, if Christianity is a means to an end to secure power, great. Um, but they don't care about the Christianity. It's clear that Fowell didn't care about the Christianity. Trump doesn't care right. about the Christianity. Um both knew f for sure that it's just about keeping us in power and, and willing to use whatever language is necessary uh, facing the public to get that. And then what goes on behind closed doors, you know, doesn't matter. Right. And I think a, I think a mature politics has to grapple with that and recognize that right and um and and also recognize and this is 
uh, you know, I, I hate to simp for liberalism, but this is one of the, the strengths of liberalism as a as a philosophical principle is, is the recognition that you, even, even though it might be incredibly tempting and incredibly efficient to have some, you know, an, an, an unalloyed strong man as your leader who is not bound by, uh, by procedures or by limitations um, as, you know, with all the inefficiencies of democracy um, that, I should not trust myself with that kind of limitless power that no right. matter how pure our, our vision is or how, um, how much we just want to help. We just want to install the, the good. Um, we, we just want to fix the problems um, that a person should not be trusted with that. Or even a single uh, group should not be trusted unopposed. Right. Um, you know, the, the recognition that it's not simply my enemies who are evil, but that uh, we all have these temptations to hypocrisy and to yes. uh, make excuses, and uh, it it does it does make um, it does make me really uh, recognize the importance and the value of the democratic institutions and of, right. of checks and balances, um, you know, and, you know, and am also aware that, that those limitations themselves are important, right? Cause it's right. not just the conservative Christians who uh, harbor hypocrisy and, and try to get away with things. Right. 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 And once you, yeah, I even wrestle with that with things like things like the filibuster, right? Like on one hand, I'm like, hey, yeah, let's, you know, we know that the opposition won't hesitate to do that when it's when it serves them yeah. to their purpose, right? They'll, they'll do the nuclear option, but at at some level, is is losing with, and this is the question: is losing with dignity and character and principle better than winning without it? Because once you lose that, it's so hard to come back from. The, and that's the whole argument with, with pragmatism in general, right? Do the ends justify the means? Um, you know, and when we look at it from a from a Christian perspective, generally, you know, at least we get back to the Anabaptist perspective, right? Which we said we're going to talk about in a different episode. But this idea that that suffering for righteousness is better than winning without it has been sort of foundational to, to Christian ethics, at least for a while. And then as time goes on and then the Christians find themselves with power, all of a sudden we're figuring out theological ways <laughs> to justify our abuse of power in, in Jesus name. Um, but it, I think it's a question that we have to ask ourselves at, at what point does compromise for the sake of power, even if it's for something good, because then the other side, when they win, has that exact same tool at their disposal, and it's so hard to regain what was lost. Are you becoming a centrist black hole again? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. But I, I want 
it, there has to be some sort of principled grounding because if you win at any cost, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just taking Jesus at his word when he says, what does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And, and what does that mean in, in electoral politics? At, at, at what point do we become the enemy just with a better with a better vision? And does that justify it? I don't know. Right. Right. Well, to, to counterbalance that, there's also the danger that procedure itself can become weaponized, right? Sure, sure. And I think, um, I mean, I think in the, you should not, you know, wantonly disregard procedure just because it gets in your way. I also think that in the case of something like the filibuster, it is so abundantly clear that that, that it is an abuse of procedure to give one party what it wants, which is government not to do anything. <laughs> right. Except appoint judges, which is also what that party wants. Like the the uh, structural imbalance of what the filibuster is, and especially this version of the filibuster that doesn't even require filibustering to do it. Right. It just requires, right. well, we're going to say no. Um, when in fact, I mean, and the, I, the fear of the weapon being used against you, in this case, I, I welcome the weapon being used against me. Like the idea that Republicans have 51 members of the Senate and so they're forced to actually govern. Like, good, give me that for two years or four years or six years because I genuinely believe that the vision that the, uh, the vision that the Republicans have for America is deeply, deeply unpopular and that they continue mm -hmm. to win through um, procedural entanglements and imbalanced scales and gerrymandering and the electoral college and that forcing them to actually do something at that the majority should not only get to run the country but have to run the country i think is, yeah. a, is a net yeah. benefit so but the your your the broader point is is well taken which is that for all its for all its um for all its failures and frustrations that there there is something um de deeply important and 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 hard won about the traditions of democracy and uh, majority rule as opposed to minority rule. Like, you know, people, you know, people <clears throat> want to be critical of, of democracy by saying it's, you know, what is it? What, is the, what is the line? Right. Mob, yeah. Mob rule. But, you know, it's, it's, um, Two, two wolves and a, and a goat deciding who they should eat for lunch or whatever, right? And right. so, you know, the, the recognition of liberal democracy, of liberalism saying, no, that there are rights that individuals bear yeah. that cannot be voted away. Yeah. Even if that, even if the goat says, no, I kind of, I kind of want to die, uh, that there are um, uh, human dignities that we are uh, committed to as a society, or in this case, goat dignities, um, mammalian dignities, um, that that's hard one. And a, it's a real achievement of, of a society to get to that point. And that these things largely are at risk through, um, through a, a number of threats and mechanisms, not least of which being the 
last hundred years of the Christian right organizing and working to strip away both the majoritarian aspect and also the uh, sense of inalienable human rights or the the rights of individuals to uh, decide their own lives, guide their own lives within the boundaries of not stamp not stamping on or trampling other people's rights to guide their own lives like that basic vision which again uh i think the the war in court really conceptualizes uh in a robust way which is why conservative christians uh hate me and will uh utterly dismiss everything i have to say because for them and for a lot of these self-avowed christian nationalists like the the war in court is the emblem of the quote-unquote post-war consensus that they're rejecting and want to get right. back to a um i mean back to a time in u.s history prior to uh reconstruction you know they they very explicitly want to draw on those aspects of the founders where they themselves were hypocritical to their vision when right. white property owners were could vote and where white immigrants could become naturalized citizens Um, And those are not just like incidental, like, oh, gotcha, it looks like there was some racism. Those are um, core systemic blind spots in the attempted liberal vision of the founders, right? Then the Bill of Rights was not a sufficient document, but it was a gesture in, in a direction and that for example, the Warren Court. And I think that, for example, um, social Democrats today recognize the promises of the Bill of Rights, of the Declaration of Independence, uh, and and gesture us further in that direction. So now I've right. become a centrist black hole myself, <laughs> apparently. Um, but the center is, uh, you know, democratic socialism. So. Yeah, right, right. So that's what I got from the Jerry Falwell documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, if anything, it, it highlights the deep corruption, uh, hypocrisy at the center of a, a movement that, that claims to be for and about Christians, um, which fits right into you know our, our, our bigger project. Um, anyway, it's God forbid. Uh, it's on Hulu. You should, you should watch it. Um, not you. And Hulu should give us a cut. That's right. That's right. The, the one other point I would want to make about the, the documentary is what it depicts is it depicts a culture of, of grooming, right? Of people in power taking younger, you know, immature, inexperienced, naive people, in this case, a, a legal adult. And in the case of college students, right, college freshmen are typically adults. Sure. But, uh, but investing in them and using your power, your wealth, um, getting, uh, gaining control of who they can, who they can contact, who they can, can report to, and uh, kind of controlling them like that that is what grooming actually is right you mean it's it's not teachers who are reading books about kids who have two moms to their their students in elementary school and and i'm curious what you think about this i'm sorry i know you were wrapping up and i'm ready to trample all over that but um liberty's uh, liberty's intention 
in get in getting rid of Falwell. First, they put him on a, a suspension, and then the full story on this dropped. It was a, a long investigative process with lots of corroboration. Another point that they uh, drive home in the documentary, but um, ultimately they fire him. And Liberty wants this behind them. They want right. to say Fa- Jerry Falwell, you know, they, they t- the documentary briefly mentions the Falkirk Center, um, but yeah. they don't mention that, you know, which was named after Falwell and Charlie Kirk. Although um, once Falwell started to get into trouble, the Falkirk Center started uh, denying that and saying, no, it was named after the Battle of Falkirk, which, uh, you know, if you really like Braveheart, there's, I think, a, I think it's mentioned in Brave. Like, they started drawing these really tenuous connections to, no, it was not. Like, despite the fact that it was co-founded by Jerry Falwell and Charlie Kirk, it was not named after Jerry Falwell and Charlie Kirk. That's ridiculous. <laughs> right, right. Um, but you can corroborate it was. Like, the documentation still exists and is findable on uh, online with the... Uh, help of the internet archive. So uh, that's, that's established. And, but after Falwell's gone, they changed the name to what is it? The Liberty Freedom Center or what, you know, whatever they learned the lesson from Paul Lyric that you have to name things as innocuously as possible. Right. Um, right. Liberty wants to call, you know, portray this as kind of a one-off and, sure. but otherwise to continue exactly as it has. Correct. Which, right. and I think that's, Part of the criticism that has come out since then is uh, one of the board members who who resigned, if I remember correctly, said, "We've we've known stuff, right? Even even in the documentary, it talks about how Jerry is showing up to meetings smelling like alcohol all the time. That the water bottle that he's carrying around is probably half full of vodka. Um, mm-hmm. You know that they, the leadership at Liberty." was aware to some degree of the the personal immorality of the Falwell family, but so long as it was covered up and they were able to still make money for the for the university and not cause enough scandal, they were willing to look the other way. Um, and now, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, Jerry is, there's a sense in which his indignation is is sort of justified or he's like, they let me go, you know, blaming this all on me. They they were complicit and, and will continue to be. And, and the lesson is you can do whatever you want. Just don't get caught. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't I don't mean to go back to our our previous episode. But as I have continued reading through um, Shadow Network by Ann Nelson, she talks about a major player in the CNP um, who gets caught abusing teenage boys and um, Tony Perkins head of the, I think family research council at the time or, or whatever he was heading up uh, basically is able to cover it up for, for a couple of years until it comes out. It, Josh Duggar is another one, right? Um, it, right? Pattern after pattern after pattern of people engaged in gross immorality at the same time that their public facing stuff is, you know, all about morality and, and these and people know, and they cover it up until they can't anymore. And then it's like, Oh, well, that's just, you know, that was just them. That's a one-off. That's an individual thing. Um, but the, the rot is to the core. Um, and I think that's what this documentary does a really good job showing. 
and could even do better, you know, if you start talking to the to the board members. But they do mention, I think, one who speaks up and you know gets kicked off for speaking up, you know, because he disrupted this the status quo. So, listeners and viewers, that's another episode of all the rage at the moment, uh, sort of hybrid at the moment and historical uh, miniseries episode, uh, looking at the continuing to look at the long shadow of the the moral majority, the the fallout and the fruits of the moral majority. I want to thank all of our uh, patrons on Patreon who support us, uh, cover some of the uh, operating expenses that we have. These mics aren't cheap. And uh, if you want to uh, follow us, links are in the show notes. You can follow us on various social media, join the Discord. Uh, all these episodes are uh, viewable on YouTube and Spotify. Uh, or, of course... Continue to listen, uh, however you get your podcasts. If you've made it this far, you probably already know how to get a podcast. You know? <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening and or watching. Everybody. Till next time. Yeah. Yeah.